Romans uh, chapter 12. Uh, when you were preparing for today, I'm sure that you go through your sort of typical order of things, you know, what you're going to wear and uh, how you're going to get the family ready. Maybe thinking about what kind of songs will we sing your favorite song and um, perhaps maybe the topic of the sermon, whatever kind of uh, responsibilities you could have. The um, uh, maybe the, the, the lunch afterward, thinking about where you're going to go to eat or how you're going to handle all that. But thankfully, uh, you didn't have to stop and ask, where is the animal? I'm not talking about walking your dog, you know, before you come. I'm talking about your sacrificial animal. Where's the sheep? Where's the goat? Where's the bull? Where's the pigeon? Where's the sacrifice we're going to bring this morning? But if you were a worshiper in the Old Covenant, that is what you thought. You wouldn't even bother to go up to the temple unless you were carrying such a thing. Because worship, very clearly in the Old Covenant, centered around giving. A worshiper who showed up at the temple showed up primarily with the thought of giving. They didn't take anything away, or at least that wasn't their way of thinking. They gave. They gave not only animals, they gave grain, they gave first fruits, they gave uh, oil and wine and, and uh, money at prescribed events. They gave all of that stuff. Everything was geared around giving, giving to God. In fact, the first time, even before the establishment of the tabernacle or the temple or anything, the first time you read the word worship in the scripture is in Genesis chapter 22. And it's the time when Abraham was told to go up to a mountain and offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice on an altar. Abraham prepared uh, his beasts of burden and took some of his servants and they walked out uh, towards the mountain because it was a long journey, dreadful journey, no doubt for him. But before they got to the foot of the mountain, he stops and he turns to his, his servants who were brought with him, and he says to them, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship. That was worship in Abraham's mind. It wasn't about taking, it was about giving. It was about offering. That's the essence of worship. It's what you find throughout Scripture. But I'm afraid it's not how most people think when they wake up on a Sunday morning where they decide to go to church or, or if they decide to go to church. Far too many people, far, far too many, they orient themselves about what they will get. It's about getting a blessing. It's about uh, getting a feeling in some cases. It's, or it's just generally about getting something out of it. That's the way people talk about whenever you ask them about their worship or whenever, they, whenever they're evaluating their worship. If they find themselves struggling in worship, what do they say? They say, well, I'm just not getting something out of it. Couldn't imagine someone walking away from the temple and uh, asking them, well, how'd it go? And the person saying, well... They just didn't give me anything. Well, everyone understood that's not why you went to the temple. You didn't go to the temple to get something. You went to the temple to give something, to offer something, to sacrifice something. That is what worship was in the Old Testament. 
And you never hear someone when they're struggling in worship and, 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 and really kind of fighting through that, you never hear them saying, well, I'm just, I'm just not giving anything. Now, what do they always say? I'm just not getting anything. Because that's the way that modern Christians, modern people have oriented themselves to think about worship. It's about what you get rather than what you give. But it's not the way Scripture wants us to think. The Scripture always points us in the true direction, the essence of worship. It reminds us if you and I are ever going to experience true Christian worship, we must orient ourselves this way. We must orient ourselves along biblical uh, lines, biblical framework, and there's no better passage to help us do that than the one we're in, in Romans 12, 1 and 2. It's a well-known passage, memorized passage, and it's very easy to understand the theme. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It's a very clear call to worship. It's a very clear call for you to respond in a certain way of worship to the realities of of everything Paul has said thus far. And he draws particular focus in this verse and in the one following to Worship in general, in terms of its driving motivation, in terms of its central activity, and even in verse 2, to its unmistakable evidence as we move forward. So when people come to evaluate their worship, when they lose their way, whenever they find themselves wondering what's happened to them and their spiritual life, all of the basic elements are right here through which you can put yourself uh, through a grid to examine, to understand what might be going wrong, to ask yourself, have I ever really understood worship? Or even ask yourself, have I forgotten what it's all about? Have I really forgotten what God has called me to? We began last week by noting then that true worship has to begin with the right motive. It rises and falls with the right motive, the driving motive, the necessary thing, if you have any hope of, of gaining or maintaining genuine worship in your life, you're going to have to stay focused, Paul tells us, on the motive of God's mercy. He appeals to them on the basis of the mercies of God. And that just being a reference to all of the tremendous doctrinal truths that Paul has given us in 11 chapters, going all the way back to the very beginning, the the justification, the propitiation, the sanctification, all those theological concepts that we have unpacked in the months gone by. But more particularly, as we saw last week, the tremendous realities of his election and his inexplicable mercy through that. As Paul mentions mercy five times in chapters 9, 10, and 11, the only times he really uses the word in the context of Romans. And it's all about this this unbelievable idea that although God is uh, hardening and, and judging so many, He is showing mercy to us who are being saved. And these realities ought to be constantly filling our minds if we have any hope of sustaining true worship. In other words, if we ever 
believe for a moment or begin to imagine that you are here today, that you are not only in a church, but you're in this church and you're sitting under this teaching or whatever it might be because of something in you. Your worship is already on the downgrade. You have already diminished the mercy of God and you have, you have downgraded your worship. You are not being properly driven, or as Paul says in one place, compelled, squeezed, and, and, and propelled towards love for God because of the love of God. Paul understood this. He understood that this is what constantly energized him towards true and genuine, authentic worship. Beyond that, Paul gives us a second necessity of this worship, and it is given to us there in verse 1 as well. It is the central activity of worship that we must understand if our worship is to be genuine, and that is the sacrifice of self. The sacrifice of self. Because of these mercies, Paul pleads with us to present your body's a living sacrifice. It's a key idea here, sacrifice. Paul uses that. He picks it up with all of its Old Testament uh, ramifications and, and uh, imagery. Because he knows that this is the biblical idea of worship. The biblical concept. In fact, he uses several technical words He combines with this sacrifice not only the word holy, the word worship, the word acceptable, the word uh, even present. All of these are words that are used in and around the discretions of the temple in the Old Testament. Those are all words at one point or another that that were used to describe what the priests did whenever they offered up sacrifice or what the people did whenever they brought their animals. And it was all oriented, as we said, not about what you take away, but what you give. Paul's drawing this image, this image of an altar and a sacrifice and an offering, but on the altar is not a lamb, it's not a bull, it's not a pigeon, it's a human. It's a human body, it's your body. That's what he says. He's calling on you and me to put our bodies on the sacrificial altar, to offer our bodies to God. Obviously, not in some bloody sort of cultic ritual, because Paul says this is a living sacrifice. But Paul is calling us to offer our bodies because worship involves so much more than just some experience in your mind. It isn't just some mental activity. It isn't just some emotional activity. It isn't something that has to do even primarily with your feelings. It is something that has to do with your whole self. And you can't imagine that you come to church once a week and sing a song and listen to a sermon or a Bible study and imagine that you have worshipped God because worship involves your entire being, your entire body. That's his point. You know, it was true. He's not just making a principle. He's not just pulling a principle out of it nowhere. This was true even in the Old Testament. Whenever you came and offered your animal on an 
an altar, whenever you offer that animal, whatever it was, or the grain or the oil or, or whatever, the worshiper was supposed to understand that it was only a symbolic representation of themselves. When God originally set up the sacrifices, He made very plain that the sacrifices are there in place of you. They are taking your place. They were were representing an offering of yourself. So that David writes in Psalm 40, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you've given me an open ear, burnt offering and sin offering you've not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. David is... uh, Talking about the scroll, the book. What, what book? What scroll? He's talking about the law. And David realized that what the law was really asking for was not animals. What it was really asking for was hearts. What it was really asking for were our lives. That we would delight, as he says, in the will of God. That we would delight in His law. So worship, we might say, is, is holistic. When, when we worship properly, we are offering our whole self to God. Let's draw the language of Paul from Romans chapter 6. We ought to be offering, uh, or you ought to be offering yourselves to, to, to God, he says, as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So you're coming and you're presenting the members of your body as His instruments to do His will. You are offering your lips to speak the truth or to even speak His truth, to speak His word. You're offering your tongues to minister words of edification and encouragement. You are offering your backs, if we might say, to bear the burdens of others. You're offering your hands To cook and to clean and to serve the needs of others. You are offering your feet to go where He calls you. Your arms to embrace the outcast. Your ears to listen to the cries of the distressed. Your eyes to look on no unclean thing. You're offering your whole self. Everything that you are. Your body. To Him. Completely. And this is worship. And it manifests itself, as David says, in a desire to do the will of God in all things. That's why you hear worship described in the scriptures, not what we normally associate it with, which is just maybe singing or maybe just coming to, to, to a Sunday morning service. You hear it going beyond that to acts, to service. Many people... Recognize Hebrews chapter 13. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Everyone loves to quote that verse. A sacrifice of praise. We're going to offer a sacrifice of praise. But they leave off the next verse. And do not neglect to do good. And to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So the writer of Hebrews is saying that your offering to God is not just your lips, but it's your deeds, it's you doing good, it's you sharing what you have. Certainly we should sing 
Absolutely, we should delight in offering to God our lips of praise. It is one of our joys. It is one of the activities we'll engage in for all eternity. But it doesn't, it doesn't stop there. We are so blessed in this church to have Darby, to have our worship team who do such a good job each week of bringing to us not, not just theological fluff, but really depth causing and driving us to think about the realities of the gospel and of God's grace in our life. But it doesn't stop there. Like the worshiper in the temple offering his animal or her animal, those songs only represent the total offering of ourselves. They only represent what is supposed to be the whole picture. We offer our whole bodies to do good, to share what we have, to serve, to go out of our home, to go where God desires us to be, to open our lips, to speak words of encouragement, to give words of counsel, words of discipleship even, to lift the burdens of the weak. Offering ourselves to whatever He would have us to do. This is the way they hear Apostle Paul describing his own ministry in terms of worship. Later on, if you go to Romans chapter 15, in verse 16, Paul speaks and calls himself a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, Romans 15, 16, in the priestly service of the gospel. So that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul says, look, we're we're ministering. He ministered to the Gentiles as an offering to the Lord. He viewed what he did, everything he did, in, in discipling, in evangelizing, in reaching loss. He viewed all of it as an offering to God. And whatever work of sanctification was accomplished among them through his many, many labors was his offering to God. Whatever work of, of, uh, of salvation, of evangelism, was something he was giving to God. Whatever work of sanctification is taking place among your children, whatever time is spent talking about the Word of God, whatever efforts are there lifting their hearts up to heaven and helping them to think about eternity, they are offerings that you're making to God. Whatever sanctification is being accomplished among your fellow believers, whatever work For the sake of the kingdom is being accomplished among your neighbors, shining the light of the gospel to your co-workers. All of it is an offering to God in worship. So that all your life now is filled with purpose. It isn't that this is the sacred hour and the rest is secular. It all, it all is dedicated to him. Paul uses very similar language in Philippians, Philippians 2.17. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. How can you take something like that? While Paul here was in prison at this point, he had been locked up for the sake of preaching the gospel and he was in a cold, damp cramped dungeon somewhere in underneath the uh, streets of Rome. And he's saying that this is his offering to God. 
And he rejoices in it. How can you take something like that, being caught up in that little place, in all of that turmoil, how can you take something like that and say, I'm glad, I'm rejoicing in it? Well, you do it by making it an offering. Paul's even here talking about the ending of his life. He's already presented himself and become a prisoner for the sake of the kingdom. Now he's saying, look, I'm willing to give even my life. And it'll bring me joy. Just pour it out. It'll bring me joy. To offer something to God. So sure, this, this, this kind of sacrifice, this kind of uh, inconvenience, this kind of going out of your way to minister to other people, to do good works, to, to find people to pour your life into... It's not easy, it is costly, but it's joyous whenever you frame it as your worship to God. It certainly will cost you in the area of convenience, it will cost you some rejection, it will cost you some criticism whenever you go to serve the Lord, it will cost you some pain, it may cost you in prison, it may may cost you your life. But if you are not offering that to God, you're not worshiping. Not the kind of worship that he's seeking. Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? That he dwells within you, that you you are not your own, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body, he says. Same concept. You're offering your body as a living sacrifice. You have this attitude of offering and worship wherever you go. You understand that God doesn't only want your worship in this building. You are the building. And so everywhere you go is sanctified. and It ought to be continually presented to God. It ought to lead you to worship. In fact, it ought to lead other people to worship. Whenever they see your acts of service. Now, Paul doesn't tell us to do this just offer our bodies, but he gives us some expansion or he predicates this with, with adjectives, with, with a modifying statement to help us understand exactly what he's talking about. The sacrifice of our body, he says, is to be living, it is to be holy, and it is to be acceptable to God because, he says, this is reasonable or this is the spiritual worship that we are supposed to give. These four qualifiers, we might say, of this worship, or four clarifying statements of this offering. All of them, as we said, sort of technical terms out of the Old Testament, except, of course, the first one, a living sacrifice. We're to present ourselves as living sacrifices. That is, you might already have guessed and seen, that is an oxymoron, right? A living sacrifice. Sacrifices are things that are killed. They're things that are slaughtered on the altar. But Paul's making the point that this this is different. This is not a one-time event. If you go to the temple and you offer up your lamb or your bull or your pigeon, you go through the ceremony. It lasts however many minutes it lasts. The priest goes through. He does the ceremonial slaughter of the animal. He sprinkles blood on you. He may burn some of the fat on the altar. He may boil some of the meat. 
in a pan. He may go through the, the thing, but after a certain period of time, it's over. The sacrifice is done and you, you sort of go your way. But Paul's looking at this sacrifice as one that doesn't end. It doesn't stop when you stop singing. It doesn't end whenever you leave the building. It doesn't last just a few moments each Sunday, or it doesn't last just a few moments when you wake up in the morning and you spend time reading over God's Word and praying to Him. It is a sacrifice that doesn't have a limited specific time because it's living. For some of you, it's been a long time since you offered yourself to God in that way. There might have been a time when you offered yourself to Him Without reservation, you came to Him when you were young. Your heart was aflame with love for Christ and you placed yourself wholeheartedly on the altar of God. And you said to Him and you declared to Him at that point, whatever you want, God, I am yours. I am yours completely, however you want to use me. And you might have dedicated yourself to God at some moment, but that offering, that moment at least, has passed. And you imagined, maybe in your, in your youthfulness and in your immaturity, you imagined that you gave God everything at that moment. You felt a thrill of love for Him. You felt a level of fellowship with God, of worship that you had never known. You tasted it and it was sweet in your lips. And you were walking as it were in in the very steps of heaven you felt so close to God. But then as time passed, you realize that while you thought you gave your all, in fact all you gave was a moment. Because to give your whole life takes your whole life to give. To, to realize that what you did at that moment, whenever you did it, was what God wants you to do every day of your life. Every moment of your life. You offered yourself, maybe it was in high school, or maybe it was in college, or maybe it was young married, maybe it was every, whenever you, you and your wife, you know, were married and you started out your life and you were going to serve God and you were going to make your home a, 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 a place out of which you serve God and you were going to dedicate your time and you had all these wonderful thoughts of devotion to Him and, and while you thought you had offered everything to God, while you thought you had surrendered, you were, you were thrilled at that moment, then you realized there's more to give. Then you realized that you had only given him a moment. Life began to wear on. Responsibilities began to come. Opportunities opened up. The busyness of life came in. And you began to realize that giving everything to God takes everything you have. And you weren't really ready for that. And so you fall into a pattern of just looking back on that time nostalgically like it was 
just something great for that period of time, but now real life has hit you. You've got kids to get to their ball games. You've got bills to pay. You have responsibilities to pursue at work and at home. And you thought you could get away with a one-time act, a one-time devotion. That was hard enough, but now you realize that was easy compared to giving yourself to God every day. That was a piece of cake. Day after day after day as a living sacrifice. As someone once said, the problem with a living sacrifice is it keeps climbing back off the altar. And we have to put it back there, right? To place yourself in that same place again and again and again and again. So in terms of its timing, your worship is defined as a living sacrifice. No one-time event, but an ongoing event. Secondly, secondly, in terms of its purpose, it is holy. It is holy. Paul says this sacrifice needs to be living and needs to be holy, which is a very common word from the sacrificial system. A lot of people think about it simply in moral terms. Something is holy. They imagine whenever it's unpolluted by the moral stains of or the immoral stains of the world. But at its very basic meaning, the idea of holy is something that is set apart, dedicated, so that you look into the uh, temple the description of the temple, and you find that not only are the priests holy, but you find that even their instruments, their spoons, their bowls are declared to be holy. Not because spoons and bowls can sin, but because those spoons and bowls are set apart for a dedicated, specific purpose. They were only for the purposes of God. They were not to be used for other purposes. And to say that your sacrifice is holy is to say that your sacrifice of your body, that the offering of yourself is only to God, that you are offering yourself only to Him, that you don't have two masters. We have in our house, I'm sure like you do, certain things that we use only for special occasions, we, we pull out a box every Christmas and we unpack the box and everything in that box is used only for the Christmas season. And when Christmas is over, we pack up the box and we put it away. We have dishes that we call fine china and it's only used for special occasions. We don't use it. It's not for everyday common use. We pull them out when we have really particular uh, a presentation that we want for maybe a special occasion. Well, the idea behind something that is holy is to say that it is dedicated, it is used, it is, its purpose is only for God. And when Paul is saying that you are offering your body to God, what he's saying is you're making your body, you're making your life only for His purposes. Only dedicated to Him. Not to serve other purposes, not to serve other gods, not to serve other people. Above Him, anyway. This means that, we, that our bodies are not presented, obviously, to sin, as instruments of sin. We don't make ourselves available to God at certain times, and then available to sin at other times. We don't look at ourselves as belonging to ourselves. 
We don't allow the evil one to make a claim on us. When we respond to the mercies of God, when we understand the mercies of God, we present our bodies exclusively to Him, to do His will. Now, the difficulty in that, in many cases, is you don't understand what His will is. I mean, you you kind of understand when you show up here on a Sunday morning what God wants you to do. You kind of understand that you're supposed to sing and you're supposed to, you know, uh, listen to God's Word and study it. You maybe, you know, give an offering, maybe serve picking up chairs or something like that. You kind of understand that. And you might understand what He wants you to do when you wake up each morning to read His Word and to spend some time in prayer. But how do you offer yourselves to God when you're heading to work each week? I mean, it feels like you're in a like an impossible situation sometimes. You don't always know what to do because you feel like you have to offer yourself to your employer or your boss or you have to offer yourself maybe to your uh, you know, children or, or cleaning your house. Or, and it, it doesn't feel very spiritual to do all those things. Well, we'll talk about this a little more next week, but when... When we are worshiping, one of the key elements then for us is the need to grow in our understanding of the will of God. We need to develop discernment so that we can understand what the will of the Lord is. We need to understand what it is to live in the world but not be of the world. Otherwise, you're going to feel like you're always put in these, as I said, impossible situations where it's impossible to serve God and serve the practical needs of the moment. But Paul's telling us that this is exactly what you have to do. Offer yourself to God at every moment. Dedicated to Him, holy to Him, set apart to Him in all situations. Paul's calling us to that kind of exclusivity. So when you come and when you sing of the mercies of God, When you reflect on His grace, you offer yourself afresh and anew over and over again to the Lord as a sacrifice. As we read last week in 2 Corinthians chapter chapter 5, verse 14, we conclude that one died for all, therefore all died. And that they who live should no longer live for themselves but for Him who died for them and rose again. So it's your whole self dedicated to Him. You're living for Him. Set apart for Him. Your life, your time, your activities, your hobbies, your friendships, everything you have dedicated to Him. Thirdly, Paul says the offering of ourselves needs to be acceptable. It needs to be acceptable to God. Some translations have pleasing, meaning obviously that there are unacceptable sacrifices, there are unpleasing attempts to God. See, under the temple system, you always understood that some some offerings, some animals, some things that you put on the altar, some of them were acceptable and some of them weren't. There were standards that were set, probably the most clear statement of this comes out of the book of Malachi, 
prophet Malachi challenging the people of God because they were trying to offer to God faulty sacrifices, blemished sacrifices. And he's warning them that these are unacceptable to God. Malachi 1, a son honors his father, a servant his master. If then I am a father, where's my honor? And if I'm a master, where's my fear? Says the Lord. He says, O priest, you despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we offered polluted food to you? By saying what the Lord's table, by saying that the Lord's table may be despised when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept that and show favor to you? Here they were bringing their sickly animals. The diseased animals to sacrifice. Because they were basically going to kill them off anyway. These are the animals that you'd put down anyway. Kill them. You couldn't sell them at the marketplace. They wouldn't fetch any money. Nobody would buy it. Nobody would want it. No one would pay for it. It was basically useless. So you just conclude, I'll give that to God. Malachi says, or the Lord says through Malachi, if you offer that to some dignitary, if you offer that to some governor, they would be insulted. You wouldn't dare. You have some honored guest who comes into your home, some honored guest who comes to your table. You go out of your way to buy the finest meats that you can get, the finest foods. You don't serve them what you would serve maybe your family on a typical day. You serve them the best that you can come up with. Because you understand who they are. You understand the kind of honor that they deserve. And God is saying, this is who I am. And yet you're treating me with this dishonorable offering, this unpleasing offering. And so when Paul's calling us to give our bodies in a way that is acceptable to God, he's calling us to give the kind of sacrifice that is meaningful, that is costly, that shows the kind of honor of who he is. The kind of way that we would orient our life and rearrange our schedule and move things around to serve a dignitary if they were entering into our life. For some of you, you want to offer yourselves to God when it costs you nothing. After you have completed all of your pursuits, after you have finished all of your entertainment, watched all of your shows, done all of your hobbies... Spend all the best on yourself, all your best efforts, all your best time. As long as you have cordoned off a certain number of nights of the week, a certain number of days of the week for you. If you have anything left over, then you might consider offering it to God. But that's unacceptable. The president calls. He says, hey, I'd like you to do something for me. You don't 
normally tell them, well, let me look at my calendar here. Um, no, I'm, I'm, I got my favorite shows on that night. And um, no, I've you know, got, I've got a, a you know, softball league that night. And I've got these other things that night. Now, when the president calls you, you say, yes, sir, how can I serve? The governor calls you. Those dignitaries call you. There's a sense. There's a sense of acceptability. Paul says you want to offer to God what's acceptable. And since we're not talking about lambs here, we're talking about your whole life. You can just imagine how it would be received by God if you offered to Him just the leftovers. You can just imagine even with your employer if you offered to God the way you offered. You offered to your employer the way you offered to God. You know, I'll do what you ask, but only after I've completed all my own personal tasks. Only after I've entertained myself. Only as long as it doesn't get in the way of all the other stuff I'm doing. As long as it doesn't inconvenience from all that you personally want to do with your time, then you'll give to your employer what's left over. You know you wouldn't accept that. It would be unacceptable. It would be unpleasing. You wouldn't offer a diseased animal to your governor. You shouldn't offer distracted service to your Savior. People try to do it all the time. Cost them nothing. Diseased efforts, we might call them. You have to make sure that what you're offering is acceptable. Acceptable to Him. Paul says we do all this finally because it is our spiritual worship. It sort of brings us full circle back to its motive. In terms of its uh, uh, timing, it is living, it's ongoing. In terms of its purpose, it's holy and dedicated to Him. In terms of its quality, it is acceptable. And here once again, in terms of of its reason, or in terms of its motive. It is because it is spiritual, or some people translate it reasonable. Logikin, it's an adjective, is the word. It is used only twice in the New Testament, both places. It is unclear from the context whether or not it's talking about what is spiritual or what is logical. But when the word is used outside the Bible, is when it's used by pagan writers... It's always used in contrast, or I should say, it's often used in contrast to superstitious worship practices. Worship that is based on superstition rather than worship that's based on reason. And so I think that is the way Paul's using it here. He's saying this is reasonable. This isn't superstitious. This isn't based on false notions, false ideas, fanciful things. This is This is proper. This is the kind of response that you ought to have based on the realities of what you know about God's mercy. This is what God would want from you. This is what God has demanded of you. This is the clear response from everything God has given you that you would offer up this kind of worship. Old Testament saints knew this. They didn't go to the temple with the thought, 
what am I going to get? They went to the temple with the clear thought of what am I going to give? And they understood worship. We need to understand worship. When we do, it will be revitalized. And it's every day. Offering to ourselves every day. Offering God, ourselves to God every day. Because it's our reasonable, our spiritual act of worship. Well, let's stand together and we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer and a song. Lord, hear our prayer this morning. Hear our cry of confession. That too often we have stepped into this place mimicking worship. But it was no true worship. It was self-centered. It was unsacrificial. It was unpleasing. But here, Lord, we want to offer ourselves again to you, our whole bodies, every member, every part of us, to do your will. And guard us, Lord, in all the areas of ignorance that we still have, all the ways we don't understand what that is. We want to grow. But help us, Lord, as we offer ourselves that everything we have might be yours. Help us to present worship as you defined it. Worship according to your word. Worship that flows reasonably from all your magnificent mercies to us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.